Their history really dates back to the ancient royal times, you know, with Egyptians using gold coins on their headdresses and garments, to when we started to see beetle wings being brought into the UK through new trade links, and we were actually sewing on beetle wings onto garments. Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter. And this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is Alyssa Brunato, a designer and researcher who explores the intersection between human demands and wider ecological systems. This has led her to tackle the huge environmental footprint caused by the fashion industry's production of modern-day sequins, which due to their miniature size and petroleum-based origins is exacerbating the microplastic issues our planet currently faces. So in 2019, Alyssa worked alongside material scientists to create naturally shimmering sequins that are made from a structural component found in plant cell walls called cellulose. The sequins are compostable, lightweight, strong, and offer a glimpse into the solutions sustainable materials provide and the possibilities that lay on the horizon at the intersection between design and science. Alyssa's projects also include exploring industrial flat glass production and the issues that stem from its widespread manufacturing to create the buildings that dominate urban landscapes across the world today. Her work has been exhibited around the world, won a range of acclaimed awards, and been featured in publications like Dezine, Creative Review, and Fast Company. If you'd like to see some of Alyssa's work, we've added a couple of links in the show description that will take you to some of the projects we speak about in this episode. And so without further ado, here's our conversation, and I hope you enjoy the episode. I wanted to start with asking you a bit about your career in the fashion industry. I read that's where you started. So I was wondering, why did you decide to enter the fashion industry? And what's a brief timeline of your career in that industry? Yeah, sure. So I guess I've always been someone that's intrigued by materiality um, and color and texture. And I've always loved to assemble, you know, intricate and detailed things. And when I was starting my design education, these interests really resonated well with the sensorial world of fashion design. And you know, also beyond that point of tactility, I really appreciated the craftsmanship of constructing garments um, and the narratives that could be spun around bringing, you know, new imaginations to the human experience of clothing. Um, and it was for these reasons that I originally studied fashion um, and then pursued a career in the industry. And yeah, so I started working in the industry at I guess quite an early age. I was about 21 years old and I was running a dynamic studio environment. And that was everything from fabric cutting to print placements to running the internship program, uh, coordinating the teams of the studio and ensuring collection looks were made. And so from that, I then moved into product development and then into production and then into embroidery development and design. And so yeah, I've worked for various companies um, specializing in embroidery development and design in the end. Okay. Was there anything that attracted you to embroidery in particular or is that just where you ended up? Um, I think I I didn't know that you could have a career in embroidery when I started design education. And so 
was sort of a discovery along the different job roles I was doing and the different companies I was working for. There was always embroidery present. And I think that really fed into my desire of, you know, going back to materiality, color and texture um, and tactility and, and this intricate play of different materials to build something. So that's where my, my joy with embroidery really resonated, I guess. And I read a bit about trips you made between Italy, India and China. And in some of the interviews with you that I read, you mentioned realizations you had when you visited the manufacturing spaces in these countries. And I was wondering what were these realizations and how did they influence your decision to discontinue your career in fashion design? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was traveling between the London design studios and the manufacturing spaces that allowed it allowed me to see on one hand ideas within the studio being turned into these magnificent realities that, you know, when we think of couture, so things being turned into, you know, from a sketch to an incredible garment and this being done by skilled craftspeople. And um, so that was a really uh, amazing process to see. But on the other hand, I also saw that there was this disjointedness between the worlds and what we were designing, you know, usually we didn't realize, you know, and, and most people, you don't realize the impacts that that have that has on the environment across the other side of the world or, you know, where, where different factories and different cultures are creating those pieces. So that those impacts, I think, was the main thing that I was really seeing. And, and I guess while the companies I worked for had really ethical practices and were using materials in a resourceful way, the concerns that I had were more about the system and more about the environment and the materials, the environment of the factories and the materials we use in general, the systemic implications they have. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's really nice to be able to go to a factory and experience how embroideries are made and how uh, fabric is woven and leather is tanned. And I think most people will never get to see that. And even most people in fashion design don't see that process. Um, so I felt quite lucky to be able to be exposed to that. But then, yeah, it's it's sort of going, okay, there is some sort of dystopia that's, that's around these factories when the water coming, you know, around the factories is brightly colored and glittering with toxic chemicals and the smells around the factories, you know, just aren't pleasant and it's mixed with sewerage and chemicals and that's where people are having to bathe. Like this, this isn't a reality that we want to see and it just, it just really felt wrong. And were there any huge differences between the manufacturing spaces in India, China and Italy? between them did the issues differ a lot between the places yeah they're very different factories around the world so in India it was more local communities and factories that were I, I guess also the way that the government runs in different countries really controls the amount of chemical leakage or where people can tan leather um, and what the river streams look like. So you can imagine in India, I mean, we've seen these images of rubbish just filling up waterways. And that really is what it's like driving to some, you know, factories. And this is in main cities. So it's not even, you know, in small rural communities, it's in the cities. Um, and then this is very different to, say, China, where you've got huge factory parks that are just enormous. And they're so big, the workers live on site. And the demand of the amount of hours they have to give to produce is in incredible. And it, it's just very sort of lab-like and 
no personality in these places. It's like people being machines. So it is a very different contrast. And then I guess in Europe, you've got something more in between, more uh, family-run embroidery houses and, yeah, more more of a mix between community and factory. It's sort of a a sweet spot, I guess. Okay. And so you you later did a master's in in material futures at Central St. Martins. And I was wondering what made you choose this course? Was it a straightforward decision for you right after your realizations that you had to then do a, a master's in material futures? Um, yeah, I was really looking for somewhere that I could explore the, I guess I could explore what I was seeing within the industry and find, I was trying to find a course where I could take those feelings and be able to unpack that into something actionable. Um, and I chose this course because it was one of the only courses in London at the time that looked um, at the world through a cross-disciplinary lens. So fusing design, technology, craft and science together. And I guess seeing how big the issues were and, and and feeling like they're quite systemic, that's not it's not something for just one discipline to solve. And I really wanted to be able to understand these problems from from multiple angles. And that material futures course is really great because it's quite open minded and allows you to come in with your own vision and ideas and, and unpack that as you know as a group and as an individual and bring your own experts in to feed you that knowledge that you need to learn. The course in Material Futures, does it have a strong emphasis on biodesign and the sciences? Not really, no. I guess, so Central St. Martins now has a course called Biodesign, and there would maybe be about 10 to 20% of the students in the Material Futures course that would be interested in this area, um, mainly because it's an emerging field. And the course really looks at how will these emerging technologies impact the crafts and the the industry that we have currently now? And so for me, my interest was in biodesign. That's where I, I drew a lot of my inspiration from, from the bio world around me um, and from nature. So naturally, I was positioning myself in this space. However, there are other people that go through the course that are more into technology in terms of digital tech and AI or more about craft processes. So it's really open to explore whatever you you want to. But yeah, it's always that feeding in from new technologies that are becoming available. And your your work on sequence, is that something you began during this course or was this directly after? So the bioiridescent sequin project was um, my master project. Okay. And for listeners that don't know anything about this, this work, what exactly is it? And why did you start work on this project? So I originally went into the course looking at different materials that could influence and be used within fashion and embroidery uh, that had a lower impact on the environment. And it sort of just fell on me to do sequins. I don't know. It was just something that I didn't go in going, I'm going to tackle sequins. Um, but we, we use sequins a lot within embroidery. And this is from haute couture all the way to fast fashion. Um, and they, they, I mean, I also started to really realize that actually sequins are super fascinating. <laughs> um, once you really unpack the history of a sequin um, and coming from an embroidery perspective, like I understood the excitement around sequins and the value they bring to garments. Then their history really dates back to the ancient royal times, you know, with Egyptians using gold coins on their headdresses and garments to 
when we started to see beetle wings being brought into the UK through new trade links and we were actually sewing on beetle wings onto garments. So there's this really nice history, but because of the fact that we now make them with cheap petroleum-based plastic, we're now starting to see that they have influenced our environment in terms of just the, the mass that they're produced in. And so, yeah, I really wanted to challenge this from a perspective of creating sequins from a renewable material, one that is more sustainable for the environment and in a way that doesn't pollute the environment like traditional sequins are. And was it your experiences in these factories and the realizations you had that made you want to have an ecological focus with your projects during this course in Material Futures and, and the work that you do now? Yeah, um, seeing a lot of leakage from factories into the environment made me start to question the materials that we make these components from. So if you've got sequins that are being swept out the factory door or that are falling off garments in your washing machine and leaking into waterways how can we make them in a way that when they enter the environment they can degrade quickly instead of lasting for the thousands of years like plastic do and how can they be made with materials that don't leach toxic chemicals so that was definitely a big influence and that was stemming from my experience with traveling and working with all these different factories and and I want to talk a bit more about your sequin project in, in detail. And for listeners that have never seen it, how would you describe what they look like? What are they made out of? What exactly are they and how did you create them? Yeah, so the sequins are made from cellulose. So it's a renewable material that's it's derived from all plant matter. And the sequins are colorful and glittering by the means of their inherent structure. So they use utilized structural coloration, just like we see within beetle wings or peacock feathers. They have these really vibrant, iridescent, glittering colors, and that's produced through light refraction because of their material structure. So I was harnessing this concept with cellulose to be able to create sequins that glitter as beautifully as a sequin that's made with metals or minerals. But instead of having this conglomerate of materials, um, I'm making them with cellulose only. And then they're made in a way that they can also biodegrade at their end of life um, with no leakage of chemicals and with no, no use of precious metals and minerals. So in terms of creating these these sequins, it requires, well, from the outside, it seems like it requires quite a lot of scientific development or, or research. And did you already have the scientific knowledge needed to create these sequins beforehand? What was your knowledge of the science behind creating these, these sequins like before you sat down to create this? Yeah, I mean, I not at all did I have knowledge in the scientific realm before. Um, I came from a design background with a very curious intuition for materials um, and I essentially just did a lot of playing and experimentation with all sorts of biomaterials that were uh, accessible for me to be able to use within my kitchen and I drew from uh, open source platforms like Materium and where they have open source recipes to use biomaterials and to create essentially new biomaterials and with the knowledge of this and the knowledge I was gaining from experts and interviewing experts I was sort of packaging this all together um, and I was reading a lot of different papers and articles and trying to figure out how I could, you know, essentially turn the inspiration from a beetle wing into something like a sequin. 
Um, and it got to a point where I needed to extend beyond my kitchen and my sort of ad hoc ways. And so I began to collaborate with two material scientists um, who I still work closely with. And um, it was with their expertise that we were able to come together to create the first prototype samples. And how, how long did this process take? It took, I mean, it was the, the master is, was a year to create the final project. So within that year, it was a lot about framing the problem, understanding biological circular material cycles, what would be good for the environment, what, what would make sense for a sequin in terms of new materials. And then it was about creating those prototypes. So in the end, we created the prototypes quite quickly, but my experimentation phase was throughout the whole year. But all of that was quite limited to the fact that it was a project created through my master. So now we're continuing the project because there are still more things to to do with the sequins. Um, we still want to develop them further. So they're still in research and development phase. And yeah. And what are your plans for growing this, this project? How do you see it developing and upscaling? So we have some challenges with like with all biomaterials, to be able to get them widely accepted and to be able to produce them with existing manufacturing processes where, you know, you it, it's easier to be able to use a new material in an old process rather than redesigning the manufacturing process from scratch. So it's, it's now about engineering the material to be able to fit within those industry processes. Um, but it's also, I guess, in terms of challenges, Petroleum-based plastic is highly subsidized. And so to be able to match new materials to these very cheap prices is one of the biggest challenges to upscaling. Are you very optimistic about being able to to merge these sequins into maybe not fast fashion, because obviously that's extremely difficult, but into slow fashion and maybe the more independent fashion brands that are, are very eco-conscious and open to perhaps using these sequins? Yeah, um, that's that's the dream. Definitely, definitely, it will start with a few brands and creating some really special one of a kind pieces, and then hopefully with the the advancements in upscaling and if we are able to be able to produce them on an industry scale, we would love for them to be able to be used in you know all your H and M sequence replaced. That is, I guess, is the ultimate goal here. And what is the main what are the main issues with sequins currently in their usual plastic format? Why do we have to solve this issue? Yeah, I guess so. It's only been since a few decades that sequins are produced from low-cost petroleum-derived plastic. So consequently, they have become a, a popular commodity of our throwaway society, like all plastic. And the material using petroleum-based plastic has really democratized shimmer. So that means that anyone can have it. And so we're now starting to see sequin garments, you know, be sold in, you know, places like H&M where people only wear them, you know, three, three to five times research shows before they're discarded. And so it's in the, the disposal stage that we see sequins leaking into the environment and um, accumulating in landfill. It's also within the production um, of making the sequins themselves, the production of making garments, the use of um, wearing and washing that these materials are leaking and they're typically around five millimeters or less in diameter and so they class as microplastics 
and they're co- most commonly made from PVC um, and polyester films like mylar, um, which is, you know, especially PVC. It's a material known to release toxic and carcinogenic chemicals in production. And it also has various different hormone disruptors. And so we see these materials entering our environment, uh, entering our waterways. They're ending up into our food chain. So this is the big issue with microplastics, that they're so small we can't capture and make sure that they're not leaking into the environment. The other thing with sequins is that there's no industrial, like feasible industrial process to take the sequins off a garment before it's disposed of. So the sequins can never be recaptured again. They they will end up, you know, going into landfill. So yeah, the, the problems really come around the material and its its raw material source. Also being using finite materials like aluminium, mica and plastic. You know, these are all non-renewable resources that are that are quite precious and we're using them for for you know small bits of plastic on garments and what were sequins made out of commonly before 30 40 years ago yeah so um we had sequins being originally made out of metal so they were quite heavy and gold coins then we had the introduction of beetle wings so the so the pepestidae beetle was commonly used it's a sort of long shape iridescent green shell and that was sewn onto garments. And then with the introduction of modern day plastics, we started to see these um, cellulose type plastics coming onto the market. And they were actually biodegradable when they when the first plastics were um, more gelatin based and, and biodegradable. But yeah, it was through mass production and the introduction of our plastic as we know it now, petroleum derived that we started to see the big problem. Okay, so we were actually using beetle wings still well into the 20th century for sequins. I don't remember the time frame off the top of my head, actually, but very much Victorian times. And it was only for the high, for the high-end garments of high society. It wasn't something that everyone could attain because they were expensive. I'm digressing a little bit, so I'm guessing there were beetle people used to have little um, beetle farms where they used to just grow loads of beetles and then use their wings to create sequins they must have done something like that I mean a lot of a lot of things that we a lot of the reason why we created plastic is also because we there was a time when we were using a lot of animal products like I think it was horn that was used to make piano keys you know, and so we're we're using all these really rare animal products, and so actually, plastic was able to solve that use of of taking our materials directly from animals and insects. But yeah, then caused a bigger problem in the end. <laughs> and so, are you working on this sequin project? Is this still a big day to day part of your life, or have other projects taken over? I still work on the sequins. That's something that I yeah is a big part of my day to day life. I guess. Um, but I also still work on other projects that are to do with materials and systems, just because I find that an absolute joy to do. Um, but yeah. And is is Float one of these current projects or are you working on any other projects that I haven't perhaps uh, come across on your website or via any interviews that I, I've read about? Yeah, um, so Float was a project I did in 2020. And that was together with Christoph Dichmann, another designer. And that was a research project that discusses the need to regulate the use of sand and glass. 
and it was conducted through many interviews with experts across the industries related to sand and with people who spoke about the use of glass and its wider social and geological uh, impacts. And yeah, that was really fascinating to look at this really industrial material and understand the process and the history of, of flat glass and how that uh, draws from our non-renewable resource sand. And what are the main issues with flat glass production that the average person like me wouldn't know about? Yeah, I guess first starting with the process, it's a process that runs 24-7, 365 days a year. So these machines just don't turn off. So we're constantly feeding tons of sand and raw material in. And this is sand that's of a specific size range that's um, found in very specific geological areas. And so this involves a lot of mining to then be able to feed that sand into these machines that doesn't stop and is just continuously feeding out the other end glass. What is actually really amazing about glass is glass on its own is infinitely recyclable. But the problem is that when we start to cloud our buildings with glass, so the modern day sky rises are covered with glass top to bottom, and we start to put all these different coatings on glass, it becomes very difficult to recycle that glass back into the machine. So when the machines make glass, they actually have offcuts from the side where they trim down the edge of the material to make it really smooth and cut off the roller marks. This is called cullet, and this cullet is fed back into the machine because that's still raw glass. And feeding that cullet back into the machine actually lowers the amount of CO2 that the, the process creates. And so it actually, in effect, creates a, a lower CO2 process, right? So we want to be able to feed the glass back into the, the machine. However, when you create these sky rises, it's very difficult to recapture that glass. There's no machine that, and, and no one bothers to take the glass off as carefully as we put the glass on. And so when we demolish a building, it all just gets mixed in with all the other materials. And you can't have a single in impurity in the glass process because it's it's really based around precision. And so if you start getting scraps of metal and other materials in that process, it really ruins, you know, kilometers of, of glass material. So that it's a lot within the process that is we need to solve. And that in effect is also we need to look at that from a design perspective on how we design buildings. Possibly, you know, in the future, do we need to design buildings in a way that is more modular so you can take the glass off more easily? And do we need to look at how we coat the glass to make sure that those coatings can be then put back and fed into the machine again? But yeah, the glass industry really is wasting material by putting it on buildings because we're not recapturing that. And it's a process that is really CO2 intensive that being able to capture that material and feed it back in could solve that problem. So is FLOAT an ongoing project too? The research phase of the project was exhibited at the Vinaba Museum uh, last year. We haven't picked it up yet, but we have many ideas of what we would love to do with it. But yeah, we haven't picked it up again to actually uh, work on that. I guess the sequin has become more of a priority for me at the moment. What part of these projects do you find most enjoyable? Because of course, over the course of this, these projects, they require lots of different phases from research to production. What excites you most about these projects? What part do you find most enjoyable? I think it's, they all come from a 
place of me being quite curious about the systems that of how we produce materials and how that interacts with us as humans and our um, needs for materials and our cultural desires and how these two different spectrums sort of relate to each other. Yeah, I think I think I, I really find industry fascinating and the way that we have demand for materials has really shaped the way products and things are made but it's all like to the average person all these processes are quite far away and a lot of people don't understand how the things around them are made Um, and I'm also like this too I mean I didn't know how flat glass was made until I went to a factory and saw these machines and I you know had the opportunity to interview so many different people from the industry and just piecing all these things together they usually always it's it always comes down to problems that no one individual can fix they're so systemic and integrated in lots of different roles and lots of different companies um and that's i think what i find quite fascinating about our world and what we've you know created is systems that you know are a bit unstoppable are there any particular materials or other niches of interest that you're really keen to look into and you're excited to look into? Yeah, um, I'm currently doing a project around uh, water, which I find is another one of these huge materials that, you know, it's it's so um, embedded in our life. You know, we need water to live. And I think this is quite an overlooked material, just like I think glasses. Um, these foundational materials I find quite fascinating. Even you know cellulose, it's one of the most abundant polymers in the world. Um, and yeah, I think these these very basic materials I find really fascinating to unpack and learn more about. So a lot of your work obviously operates at this intersection between arts, design and sciences. And it's a really interesting intersection. I think it's an intersection that a lot of creatives perhaps stray away from learning about the sciences. There's a bit of a, a divide there between the sciences and, and the creative arts. And I'm interested to hear a bit more about your thoughts on how this intersection can intersect more (laughs) or more people can get involved in this intersection and how important do you think this intersection is in helping push forward a more sustainable future in general um yeah I think I I really believe in collaboration between these different sectors I think it's really important to be able to have these cross-disciplinary approaches in order to generate new ways of thinking and have different thoughts be brought into a process is really important and just even not only only different disciplines but different backgrounds I think the more people that can come to a table to tackle an issue or to look at a project you know from all these different angles is the only way we're going to step out of maybe what's going wrong or just step beyond and to innovate and think differently and for me collaborating has always been really important and I've I've seen and I, I think because I've been I've, I've been able to experience collaboration with um, science inst- institution um, it's really opened my eyes to actually you're not we're not that different you know scientists think very very much in a, a problem solving space just as designers can think like this too um, and 
yeah, it just actually really fascinates me how there's a lot of cross thinking. It's just different language, I think. And in the end, it's just understanding different people's points of view and where people have maybe had more experience in, say, industry or a certain more experience in material and bringing that to the table. But yeah, a big learning curve for me was just being able to adapt to different words and different languages that, you know, that I'm not used to talking about materials in a scientific way, for example. And, you know, just like scientists aren't used to the language that we use in fashion and the processes we have. So just being able to explain that to each other bridges these um, gaps. But yeah, in terms of um, people getting more involved in it, I think um, there are a lot of residencies and institutions that facilitate this because I think it's become more common knowledge that great things come out of collaboration and more people thinking about a project or a, a task or a problem. And have there been any great books or resources that particularly inspired you or influenced the way you, you approach your work or have just been very influential to your projects? I think books like Biodesign Now has always been really fascinating, um, seeing different projects that merge the art, science um, and technology space. Then also platforms like Biofabricate, um, I think, show really good examples of these sorts of processes that maybe once were quite artistic and showing them and their evolution into industry. Um, and also there's great resources on Biofabricate just to explain the terminology and the language and what bio-based means, what biofabrication is, what biotechnology is, because they're quite abstract words. And so I think these sort of platforms have been really valuable to me in understanding the industry. And are there any, so you mentioned some companies and, and projects already just there, but are, are there any contemporary projects or ecologically orientated designers that are, you're very inspired by at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so many in a way. There are lots of really great biomaterials that are now starting to emerge on the market. Um, it's amazing what uh, things like spider silk um, and spiber are doing to be able to bring something like spider silk to market. Also, bolt threads, I think they're doing incredible work in innovating how we even look at leather and perceive leather and what is leather. And not only are they educating the public to see leather in a different way, but also innovating the production processes and um, to bring these new materials to market. And I think these types of companies are, are paving that the way for other smaller companies to step in and, and bring other new materials to market also. And on, on a day-to-day -day basis, are there any specific practices you've incorporated into your life to help you live a more sustainable, waste-free life? Is Outside of your work, is living in a sustainable way something you pay a lot of attention to? Yeah, I think with all the different research projects that I've been looking at, there's always a link to soil and um, the way that we grow our materials, whether that's cotton to our vegetables. And so um, I try as much as possible to support local growing schemes and to be able to buy my food, fruits and vegetables 
in a more sustainable way. I actually have, I get my fruits and vegetables from a company called Growing Communities, which I find really great because it's it's as local as possible uh, sourced fruits and vegetables grown by smaller companies. And so I try and stay away from buying from, you know, the Tesco's and the Sainsbury's. And I think it's small things like this that really make a difference. Also with clothing, I think you know, the biggest thing that people can do to be more sustainable is just wear the clothes they have to death, you know, and just don't buy new clothes. And I think this challenge is is something that I've tried to do myself. And, you know, I, I very rarely buy clothes anymore. I'm more about upcycling and, you know, remaking my clothes into new things or just making my clothes from scratch. And yeah, just also supporting other small companies. A friend of mine has a company that is taking old clothing and turning that into children's clothing. And so small things like this, I think, are really making a difference. But it's about learning about it and and reading and then sort of seeing how you can implement these things into your life. Um, but yeah, in general, we should all just buy less. <laughs> yeah. And because none of us are perfect and we all have perhaps some guilty pleasures when it comes to our lives that we may be indulging from time to time that are perhaps not very environmentally friendly. Are there any guilty pleasures you have that aren't particularly environmentally friendly, but you find it hard to resist or get away from? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's so many. I think probably, you know, in a way, that's a bit why I decided to create the bioiridescent sequin. I mean, it's one of these in a way, a guilty pleasure to have garments that have sparkly things on them. And I think most people that have a garment with sequins, after knowing how bad they are for the environment, go, oh, no, I shouldn't have bought that. Like, I need to get rid of it. But, um, you know, I think buying shiny clothing, no. Um, what would be it? Maybe sparkling water. That's sparkling cool. water. <laughs> <laughs> so you're one of the sparkling water drinkers. <laughs> Or even things like now I do this water project, having a bath once in a while, you think, oh gosh, no, I shouldn't have a bath because it uses more water than having a, you know, a quick shower. Yeah, I mean, the list, the list goes on. But I think we can't make ourselves feel too guilty about, you know, what we're doing. And it's simple changes that I think can make the biggest impact. You know, also just eating meat less is um, a great way to actually help the environment. And we've covered quite a lot and I don't have any other questions off the top of my head or pre-written down, but is there anything I've, I've missed? Any, any last words you'd like to, to say to listeners before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think that's everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great to talk to you. Honestly, I've learned a lot just listening to you and it's been really, really interesting for me personally and I'm sure for listeners to hear about the things you've had to say. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Canvas. In two weeks, we'll be back with the next episode. In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.